First of all, hello, we're here at the Festival of Perth in Western Australia in February of 2015. I'm here with Joe Abercrombie. Hi, Joe. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Yes, in person this time. In in person for the the first time ever. And Sean Williams. In person also, also, but not for the first time. Oh, it might be for the first time, actually, I think. Well, you mean on the podcast? Yeah, on the podcast. Yes. It's not, not the first time we've been no, together no, no. personally. We've but, but, many well, moments. We've met also personally. We've we in well, the UK. Briefly, we, we briefly <laughs> met at a few conventions. We sort of glanced off one another. And we have. Ricochet. That's about it. Pinball <laughs> 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 machines. So, I mean, thank, thank you both for joining us. I mean, obviously, Gary's not here because I couldn't be bothered trying to synchronize in with Chicago time. Hello, no. Gary. Which you could imagine would make it much more colourful and interesting. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, so that's not, you, what, you guys are both here for the festival? That's right. Yeah, yeah, Perth Writers Festival, which is a first for me in Perth. Yeah. I've uh, been into Australia before, but never to Perth. So this is new new to me. Excellent. It's hot, isn't it? It is hot, though. I hear it's often hotter. Yes. I hear it's not actually that bad. I've been watching the weather the last few weeks. It's been swinging from 30 to 40 million. And uh, luckily, we're somewhere in the middle at the moment. Yeah, I was in Melbourne last week. And looking at, uh, at the day I was due to come back, it was like 39 degrees. And I was like, no. Yeah. But it mellowed out a little bit, so it's not too bad. It's just it's nice a little bit more. Anyway. Yeah. So I, I guess the thing that's interesting to, as, as a point to start off with is you guys are both out talking about new novels. Mm-hmm. You've, you, Joe, have got the second of the Shattered World series, mm-hmm. Half the World. Half the World, yeah, yeah. And you're out with the second of the Twin Maker books and the third one due out later this year? That's correct. That's right. So, Crashland. Uh, Crash in Australia. Cra- Crashland Cra- in the US. Mm-hmm. It's the oh, second right. one that came out. Different, different titles. Yes, it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you feel, how do you feel about that? Well, actually, I, I felt quite conflicted about the Australian titles because the Australian market wanted Twin Maker to be the series title right. and have short, punchy titles in Australia. And I was like, I felt a little bit funny about it. But with time, I think they actually made the right call. Which is, which is unusual. Now, is that because they made the connection between the books for readers and bookstores? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not sure why. I think it's... Maybe, I don't know. I just think they had a handle on the series that I didn't have a handle on at the time. That nobody else had a handle on. Somehow they knew where it was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as we were saying the last time we spoke, the Shattered Worlds book really are the first time you've written for a younger audience. Yeah, it's Shattered Sea. Shattered Sea, sorry. Yeah, I apologise. That's right. Um, yes, it is. Well, well, you say that, but then I get kind of 10-year-old kids emailing me about my adult stuff and saying how much they loved it and, and I, I get this kind of slightly worried feeling. <laughs> what did you make of the, the, the kind of hard sex scenes yes, in yes. it? But I think they just kind of, that, that goes over their heads. Mm. They just think there's some weird stuff going on. I just don't know. They're so, either ready for it or they're... Or they're either ready for it or, it or they ignore yeah. it. So, you know, one way or another they get it. Well, well, certainly, I mean, I don't know if it was the case you know, when you were a young reader, but that was, I guess, my, my experience. I mean, I remember reading... Frankly, particularly ropey-looking Robert Heinlein novels. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, particularly ropey-looking. <laughs> and you know, you read them when you were thirteen. What did you know about the world? You know, you know, sort of women getting married and on the moon when they were fourteen and having sex with sixty-year-old men didn't really was not even noticed. Whereas, who's to say how things will go when the moon is finally colonised? Yeah, I bet that's not the way. Well, I'm kind of hopeful not. Yes. <laughs> as, as a father of 13-year-old girls, I significantly <laughs> hope not. You know, but, uh, so, so I can see how you filtered out. Was there a moment uh, sort of when you decided you wanted to write for that audience, though? 
Yeah, a little. I mean, well, the first thing for me was I was uh, I was approached by uh, a guy called Nick Lake, who's a young adult. He's a writer also, a very very successful and award winning writer, in fact. But he's a an editor for HarperCollins in the UK, and he uh, called his taste into question by admitting that he liked my adult work, and he, <laughs> he he kind of said that he thought I maybe had a good young adult book in me, uh, particularly perhaps for boys who I think are sometimes thought of as mm-hmm. being a bit overlooked in the young adult sphere. Yeah. Um, so he kind of suggested the possibility of writing something for him. And, and at the time I was busy with my adult stuff, I had a full plate and, and a couple of books already planned. I was writing The Heroes, I think, then. But the idea stuck with me a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, it seemed like something that could conceivably complement my adult work quite well, while the apple wouldn't necessarily fall too far from the tree. Sure. It's a bit of a delicate balance. You don't want to write something wildly different because people may get a bit upset, understandably. But you still want to use the name you have. And maybe take some of your adult readers with you. So it seemed like a possibility. And so when I came to a kind of natural break in my adult work, uh, it felt like it'd be a good thing to to try as a bit of a a palate cleanser, I suppose you'd say. <laughs> uh, it, it also seemed to be a good opportunity to try to write a kind of much shorter, tighter, more focused style of book. Mm-hmm. Um, my adult books are ripping yarns with thrills on every page of course Mm. Uh, but they're kind of big complex multi-point of view um, gritty dark they have a certain tone that's similar so I felt like I wanted to try something slightly different something with life and death on every page (laughs) as Adam Neville puts it all right Um, so I modified that a little to a slap in the face on every page I wanted a kind of driving single point of view narrative and so to kind of combine that slightly different style with potentially appealing to a slightly wider audience, to also refreshing the publishing a bit, perhaps, sure. and getting interest from different publishers in other sure, sure. in other territories, um, all seemed to be, you know, uh, a set of goals that could maybe come together. Yeah. And so that was that was the aim. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Now you, of course, Sean, started writing for YA way back in the nineties when you you had the first batch of books, and then you wrote the. The, the, the books of the, the change. change. That's right. The yeah. Stone Age. That's right. Yeah. And was it a similar kind of feeling at the time? Well, at the time, I just wanted to write books that were like the books that I enjoyed reading. So I'd started off by writing science fiction crime novels, you know, sort of imitating Asimov, mm-hmm. etc. And then I was writing space opera, imitating Blake Seven and Star Wars, and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. I, I wanted to write fantasy because I also I grew up reading fantasy, particularly through my teenage years. And once I tweaked that you could write fantasy in a setting that wasn't European. Um, and that I could set an Australian landscape, mm-hmm. and I really strongly wanted to do that and, and pursued that vigorously and uh, and uh, and did for for many 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 books and they weren't you know massively successful and uh, but I loved writing them I and they never sold outside of Australia but uh, <laughs> but but it was good I, I, I was, they were they were filling a, yeah. a very powerful emotional need in me to write about the place that I came from and, and the, the landscape that I love uh, but later these days um, mm. it, it occurred to me that I I had never written. YA that was science fiction, yeah, and um, and I still had the whole matter transmitter trope that I was still madly in love with, and you know my second novel was a matter transmitter novel. I really wanted to come back to that world and do something big again. And talking with Scott Scott Westerfield, um, I had this half baked idea that matter transmitters and urban myths and teenagers kind of fit together. And, and Scott sent me an email after that conversation saying this is the coolest thing ever. And I thought, well, maybe <laughs> if Scott thinks it's cool, maybe I should try and write it. Yeah. So that's what brought me back to YA in a kind of a serious way, in a, in a mode that had become really well established. Sure. It was a pseudo dystopian adventure, <coughs> YA fiction. Because over the last decade, you really have moved around a little bit because you've done 
Well, you, you were at a point where the whole, there's been a whole series of adult space operas with Ace. You've written some Star Wars <coughs> novels. You've done middle grade lately, writing tr- you know, Trouble Twisters with Garth Nix. Yeah. And younger fiction, the Fix It series. Yeah. The Fix It series. For and then back, and... You know, back to write the Twin Maker books. Mm. Um, do you find, do you approach writing the books differently? I, um, I, oh, well, I didn't really. I mean, I, writing from a teenage female perspective with one viewpoint character was something that I hadn't done for a while. I mean, it's usual. Like, like Joe's books, you know, multiple characters. Um, mm-hmm. Complex, interchanging kind of plots punctuated by bouts of extreme sexual and sex, <laughs> sex and violence, you know. <laughs> Fantastic stuff, but you can't, you can't do that quite so much in YA, can you? You know, it's just... It is frowned upon to a degree, I think. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's for small of them, I think. Yeah, no, I think yeah, so, too. That's right. But, you know, I think there is certain... It's a different kind of mode, so you apply different rules, and, and, and being creatively confined, I find, really interesting. You know, yeah. Say, well, you can't do sex. You can't do... Yeah, you can do sexual feelings, and you can do swearing, but you can't do you know massive amounts of swearing. People often think creativity is the result of total freedom to do anything you mm. like, but in fact, as with the second set of Star Wars films, for yes. example, <laughs> total creative freedom is often the worst possible thing. Exactly. A nice set of rules and restrictions and deadlines and limitations, I think, often produces the best work. Do you think the restrictions that you had to put on writing the Shattered Sea books made a real difference to how you go about telling a story? Uh, it made some. I, I don't think a lot, actually. I mean, I was kind of aware that I was writing in a different mode. I think if, if I had started writing young adult, I'd probably have felt I can't go to all these places I want to go to. Yeah. You know? But I'd done very adult yeah. books already, and so I kind of felt as though I'd scratched that itch yeah. a little bit, and it was time to try something slightly different. Yeah. I'm sure I'll go back to more adult stuff in due course, but I think also I was... You know, as Sean said, I was I was really motivated by wanting to write the kind of book I liked at that age, yeah. um, which was fundamentally not very different to what I like as an adult. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, when you say young adult, I think some adult readers think this is something very different, very immature, very young. Mm. <laughs> but the, the thing I was trying to bear in mind was that, you know, they are adults, but they're just young. Yes. You know, and uh, fundamentally, we're talking about a readership who is dealing with serious things in their lives, who make yep. big choices, big decisions for the first time, and they want books that speak to serious stuff. Sure. They don't want to be coddled and presented with something childish. Yeah. They want the exact opposite. Yeah. So for me, it was about writing something faster, quicker, uh, but with particularly a young adult protagonist. I tended to have older, very used-up protagonists <laughs> in my fantasy. <laughs> From an autobiographical standpoint, of course, people who'd been around the block and were... Yeah. Variously destroyed, disfigured, and, and kind of Seems damaged like some by this time. Yeah, <laughs> I want to, to have a, a, a blank canvas and then to end up with a yeah. disfigured and debauched <laughs> and destroyed young adult at the end of the story. Yeah, they start off fairly damaged. They do. Yeah, a little. I mean, but but less so than less yeah. used up and world weary than. Sure, the, sure. Yeah, and, and I guess you know, fewer loving descriptions of of swords passing through innards huh. and. A yeah, certain, a certain percentage of your YA readership would love that. Though. Well, they would, and, and and you know, I, I don't feel like I've really changed that much. Yeah. Um, I mean, swearing definitely was less swearing, but I think you know, if I'd written in the same world, it would have felt bizarre and twee. Yeah. To suddenly have people in the same world sure. not talking in the same way, but when you write in a new world, you can you're free to kind of establish the idiom yeah. and, and start yeah, from scratch, yeah. and so I think. You know, it's easy to, to get around that. There yeah. will certainly be readers who want that, that little bit more edge that you get in an adult book, but yeah. I don't think it's essential. 
don't think there's anything fundamental to storytelling yeah. that can't work. Because you can still be cruel to your of characters. Course. And, and that yeah. emotional cruelty is what yeah. kind of people want. Readers, uh, to a certain degree, I kept myself in this, uh, are sort of in vampiric voyeurs who want to watch characters suffer and grow and overcome, hopefully, but also sometimes be destroyed and end up totally yeah, damaged. Vicarious and thrills. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. And but you can I'm, do that with teenagers just like you can with adults. And, you can. And, and the stuff I was thinking of, you know, the, the stuff that I was thinking of that I read were, were kind of historical fiction like Rosemary Sutcliffe and sure. mm. Henry Treese, things that I read yep. as a kid, John Christopher. And, mm. you know, my memory of those, and having, you know, looked at a couple of them again when I started out trying to yeah. really kind of refresh my memory of the feeling of them. Those are tough, yeah. uncompromising <laughs> books. I mean, they're not yeah. gritty in, in the way that kind of modern stuff is gritty, but they're, emotionally speaking, and in terms of what the characters go through, they're as tough as anything. Yeah. And, and they have that moral ambiguity, that darkness. They're not shiny, simple, heroic books at all. So it was really that I was trying to imitate. It's a really interesting point you make. I'd be curious what you both think about this. Do you think that when you look at YA today, when people talk about it, rather than the, pe- the kids you want to re- you, you will read it, and the adults you hope will read it, and the people who are writing it, but when people around it talk about it, do they seem to want it to be neater and tidier and more polite than the kind of books we actually read when we were growing up? Because, I mean, you and I aren't that far off. You're a little bit younger, not a lot that much younger. And I read Henry Trees and John Christopher and those kind of things when I was growing up. And you're right. Some of them were quite uncompromising, and there seems to be a, a desire for to be more compromising, more coddled and supported kind of thing. I think there's a perception that it might be a perception. Like that. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that a sort of a Weasley kind of answer to a, a good question? Yeah. But I, I, yeah. Mm. I, I, I've come very much from adult fantasies, yeah. what I've done in the past. And so a lot of the places I loiter on the internet are kind of adult yeah. fantasy discussion areas. And there's certainly an attitude among a certain vocal set. Yeah, there's always a vocal set of, of fans, isn't there? Who, who think that YA must be very, uh, you know, simple and and unchallenging and yeah. soft and silly, you know, sure. disposable and immature. Mm. And then... Because that's having, what teenagers are. That's what teenagers they, they, are. Yeah, but of course they're having finally, you know, someone's prevailed upon them to try my, my yeah. young adult stuff because I sure. like my adult stuff. Like, oh, I was surprised to find that, you know, it's actually not that dissimilar to the adult stuff. And you're yeah. like, well, duh! Yeah. <laughs> because why would it be? I still wrote this bloody book, didn't I? Well, it's just, like, we were talking about, uh, before the, this discussion about the packaging of, of the Shed and Sea books mm. and how they're quite... There's nothing overtly to signal the young adult books. And I know that the Twin Maker books do have more of that. But there is something in it when you see, when you consider what classic kids or wire packages might be, it's to deliver the idea that it's a cozier story, I guess, than it ever might actually be. Mm. You know, because, you know, when I hear people talk about the best of young adult fiction these days, it's rarely, if ever, remotely cozy. No, I mean, no. teens have an enormous uh, appetite right now for whatever reason for dystopian fiction, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I can see how you know dark, more violent stories appeal for all sorts of reasons, but this coziness really is a superimposition from outside what's actually going on. Is, is that just much... a, is that just a, a marketing uh, imposition just to not Pardon. scare off librarians and parents? Uh, mm. Not librarians. I'd be very yeah. reluctant to yeah. characterise librarians who, when I've experienced them, have been very. Oh no, I'm not saying that they are engaged. That. I'm just saying that marketing people may be worried that they are. That Look, we're not saying that they are. I can certainly say <laughs> that a cosy-looking book, if you like, has a better chance of making it onto a library shelf mm-hmm. than a book that doesn't look like that. Just because, you know, like, if the cover of 
you know, half a world is somebody cut half in two by a sword slowly sort of falling apart and in it's fallen out. Mm. You know, which happens regularly through the book, I can tell you. Of course. Yeah. Um, that might be quite a divisive cover. They, they must go and go, I'm not really sure that that, that should go in the kids' <laughs> section in the local library, which is not something you want to do. But, but a certain section of the kids' market would, 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 it would never be on the shelf. You know, every yeah. boy in school... Maybe boy in school. Look, look what I've got. Look <laughs> at hey, this cover. Maybe that's an option. We could well, cover a percentage of the books. We could print out, print out your own cover and wrap it around the, the safe coddled cover maybe. to appeal, appeal to the six. But then, I mean, this, this whole wire thing is a modern construct, isn't it? Really, it is. And and you know where a book is sold, how a book is sold, is always slightly arbitrary. Yeah, is always kind of the result of the publisher who's publishing it and the the market they're used to, the way in which they like to yeah. sell it. And often what you've done before and what you're known for. So, I mean, for me, I, was, I wasn't really writing this with a lot of reference to the YA category as it is. I, I'm not expert in it. I don't know a huge amount yeah. about it. I was, I was trying to write the kind of book I wanted to read at that age uh, more than anything. And so I think what I ended up with was kind of, uh, it's somewhere between in a yeah. way. It's, it's not very totally recognisably an obvious YA um, and so some publishers have, have sold it as adult fantasy, really, mm-hmm. um, depending where it is. Some markets don't have a particularly established YA area mm-hmm. uh, in the same way. In, in America, it's very, very distinct and established yeah. and successful. So in the UK, they've kind of straddled both. Um, there's a YA editor involved with it, as I say, and, and they've, they've managed to come up with a treatment that kind of, I think, works for both to a degree. In the States, they've gone for much more of a adult fantasy look and pricing and marketing mm. approach really they're an adult publisher so that's yeah. not surprising in a way yeah. and the fact that I've obviously come from adult fantasy and have sure, a readership sure. there already and had very consciously written something that I mm. still wanted to work for those people yeah. you know means that they saw the best option to be yeah. to sell it largely as adult and in the hope that young adult readers would find their way to it I think the yeah. problem is partly young adult readers will find adult books whereas adult readers are maybe that bit more reluctant sure sometimes so it depends where you are and yep. how they've sold it. And it depends where you are, what is defined as YA. It's a very uh, mutable and mm. fuzzy distinction category, yeah. I think. Did you find, can I, Joe, can I ask you a question? Sorry, sorry, Jonathan, to no, jump into the no, editorial no. chair. Yeah. Uh, Get you... out, Jonathan. Get out. <laughs> We're talking <laughs> The adults are talking now. <laughs> Did you find a difference in the editing style moving from adult? So you just mentioned that you had a young adult editor. Yeah, well, I have I, I have four editors oh, wow. in these books. Four editors. I do. I have. Uh, Your beard has gone grey. Well, it's going there. It's get a bit white around the edges. Uh, I have a US editor. Yeah. And then in the UK, I have a senior editor on the kind of adult fantasy side, who's the lead editor. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a more junior one who's doing a lot of the day-to-day stuff, but is also yeah. having some editorial input. And I have a young adult editor as well. Yeah. So they're all having a bit of input. At wow. times they haven't needed or wanted to have that much, yep. which has been lovely. And at other times <laughs> they have wanted a good deal more, yes. which is also lovely because I love to take on their opinions and improve my books yeah. through the use of their huge expertise. Um, but there has been some difference, yeah. And it's been very interesting to see how uh, Nick Lake, who's the young adult guy, what, what sort of comments he's made. Mm. I, when I was talking to publishers had this genius idea, my, my genius thing. While they were all telling me, it's great, can you bring a book to us? I would say, what do you not like about the book? 
<laughs> thinking that would sort out the week from the chat, you see. And they've learned it's going, I will. Well, <laughs> a couple of them did. Oh, no. Fact, how but, but what he did that was very interesting was he just had one comment to make, which was very much from a kind of young adult perspective, mm. which was about the, the main character having gone through this journey and kind of discovered who he is and, and had the coming-of-age process. Mm. I then had his sort of final decision slightly being taken out of his hands mm. and being decided by the adults, which was sort of a reversion, you know, mm. unwittingly, without really thinking about it. I like powerless characters who would do what they're told, even adults. Yeah. But I'd kind of spoiled the point slightly. Mm. And his point was he needs to take more responsibility for that decision. He needs to find a way of making it his mm. call rather than mm. theirs. He needs to retain the power of his own life. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting to see an editor, you know, really coming from that standpoint. What should a young adult book be about? Yeah. What appeals to the audience? What works with the characters? And so that has been very interesting. But I think overall it's not radically different with the process. Not no. for me anyway, in this particular case. No. How about you? Because I mean, you obviously do both. Yeah, I, well, I moved into the YA, a full-on American YA editorial process with, right. with Twinmaker, and um, and it was a very, very different process. I mean, multiple, multiple rewrites with hundreds of comments. Just, right. just, just. I never had an editorial process like that before, which was quite extraordinary. And and a part of it was uh, being reminded that um, for the audience of this large, a large percentage of the audience of this book, this is the first time they'll see anything like it. And you have to be aware that that uh, right. some things need to be explained, or you can't assume a certain amount of emotional experience. And uh, and that was it was fantastic. Good to be reminded of what it's like to be a teenager. Yeah. So I guess if you're dealing, you're dealing with quite well. I, I hesitate to use the phrase high concept. But some quite complex science fictional concepts. Well, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah. Too. Whereas me, it's like swords, you know, swords, swords <laughs> and boats. Swords <laughs> and boats don't need a lot of explanation. Probably I need to explain a bit more. Yeah. Except we know that if Kim Stanley Robinson had written your book, there'd be an awful lot of descriptions of tacking into the wind mm. and how the waves were formed and all that kind of and stuff. Kit. Probably, yeah. Lots of kit and glossaries about all the kit at the back. <laughs> <laughs> but that would probably be a better book. Never mind. I, no, I wouldn't say so. A different, book. different book. Different book. That's a different right. book that would probably yeah. teach us an awful lot about knots. Yeah. Which we probably don't need to know. Um, <laughs> you were saying that with these books you're writing at times from a female perspective. Yeah. How difficult is it for you and what do you have to look out for when you're trying to write, particularly for, for from a, a, a teen female perspective because I think it's safe to say you've not actually been a teen girl no but most of my books have a female perspective so really what I'm doing is actually not a stretch in a way it's just me mm. doing what I want to do so for the first time I think I have a book that's entirely a female mm -hmm. perspective whereas normally I'd have a male character as a, as a countering voice and I find young men much much harder to write because um, I'm, I'm interested in people who are emotionally labile and, uh, you know, really think quite deeply about who they are and where they might want to go. They're maybe not thinking the correct thoughts or, or getting things right entirely. But I, I'm interested in that kind of person. And, I've, and, and young blokes, I find Just run difficult things. to understand. Yeah, which, is, which is admirable in, in the right circumstances when swords <laughs> and, you know, stuff are required. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And not, which is not to say that your characters are in any way shallow at all, but I, I find it... <laughs> <laughs> But, but, the, but yeah. the, 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 the most well, no, no. I mean, it's, it no, wasn't no, that. No, no. But the, the one book that I've had the most trouble to write was was a was a two viewpoint character, which was entirely male, and I'm, I'm never going to go back and do that again because it's just too damn hard. Right. So, right. so it, it's yeah. a, it's a kind of coming home for me in a way. So, my first fantasy novel was written from a teenage, partly from a teenage girl's point of view, and it's mm -hmm. great to come back to that. But 
but it was slightly different writing for an American audience rather than an Australian audience and uh, writing yeah. science fiction rather than fantasy and, mm. uh, and in, in our future rather than our... Imagine well, I don't think we've really talked about it much. What, what is the difference that I mean, you've done it enough now, writing for an international audience rather than a, a domestic audience here in Australia? Well, I think I've always been an international kind of writer yeah. anyway, you know, apart from the books of the change, which were set in an imaginary world that isn't really Australia. It just kind of has an Australian feel to it. But I can't quantify that, you know. I mean, yeah. we, need, we need Terry Dowling on one side of the microphone and Greggy on the other to have that amazing discussion about what is the, the magical quality or miracle quality X or whatever, uh, miracle ingredient X. A, that's right. a, yeah. I don't know, but, I, but I, I think because my reading was mainly international, I don't know whether you had the same kind of thing growing up. You read internationally yeah. and therefore what you vomit forth when you start writing tends to have an international feel. I suppose I was never all that conscious of, of the nationality of people I was reading in a way. You kind of pick up writers without necessarily without, yeah. thinking about it. Maybe that's a privilege you have as a British person where a lot of writers are British. Yeah. You know, you almost expect they will be. But isn't that a, a frankly, the, the experience of any you know, reader almost growing up? I, mean, I, I don't so. remember yeah. through till my late teens or whatever later stopping and thinking much about the writer at all. No. You know, it's like you might be aware no. of the brand name, but you're not really thinking about somebody sitting in a room writing the story and what they're like and where they're from. Yeah. Like you're reading books, you know, you're, you're not much to the disappointment of them. You're not paying attention to publishing houses and watching <laughs> for their logos. Yeah. And nor are you worrying about whether, you know, somebody's from South Africa or from the UK or anywhere else. Right. You're just picking up interesting stories and responding to that. That's the primary primary thing, surely. And it's only later on you look back and go, oh, well, that one was actually, you know, sort of mild dystopian steampunk written by, uh, you know, an Ethiopian writer with an interesting perspective on, on that. Mm. And I think that's a privilege we have as readers of speculative fiction, that we we can read books set in any world, anywhere, written by anyone from anywhere in our world. Whereas if we if we happen to like Australian literature or, or books about British history or the American yeah. Civil War, I think you tend to get clusters of authors from particular areas and, and broad cultural influences on your writing if you then become a writer later. You so, won't find a lot of Belgians writing about Ayers Rock necessarily. You probably won't find a lot of Australians writing about Ayers Rock either. Well, you've got to be very, very careful. There was yeah. a bit of a stink just recently, two or three weeks ago, where two pieces of flash, flash fiction came out, both called Dreamtime, uh, stomping all over Indigenous Australian culture without permission or consultation. So it, it, it's still a very sensitive issue. Well, here, yeah, rightly so, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's probably yeah. reasonably true to say that Australians as a group have found it difficult writing about Australia as a place forever. I mean, particularly yeah. the geographical distinctions and the physical the physicality of the country. I think we've always struggled to, to get that into fiction and to give you an idea of why it may or may not be distinctly different. And I know that the Australian science fiction community, at least at one point in its history, went through kind of going, look, there's nothing to see here. We're just like everybody else. We all read John W. Campbell's Astounding and we're all the same kind of people. We all read Robert E. Howard. It's all good. As opposed to trying to work out what, what may have been distinctly different. Particularly, I mean, since we, we, we lived at the end of a pipeline. You know, we lived at the end of, you know, we got British books sent, sent over to us on ships. We got the odd American book and you lived with what you got. And there wasn't any real... Domestic market. Well, yeah, that's right. And it was hard. there weren't many writers kind of tackling it, like Patricia Wrightson, and hmm. that was it for a while. And, and then, and then me, I guess. And there seems to be a new generation of writers trying it again now. Oh, it's, sure. But it's, it's hard. You know, and, and there are things you're never aware of until much later, because you're trying. Well, what is say the fantastic tradition in Australia? So, mm. and you know, no one sat sat there when I first encountered it, saying, "Well, it starts with Mary Poppins," mm. because no one think. And no one, I never knew she was Australian. 
Right. You know, and it was only in the last what, five years or so it became common knowledge, I think. And so it was Patricia Wrights and then on through a, a batch of sort of uh, guys who were, who were hanging out in Melbourne, Damien Broderick and Lee Hardy, those kind of people. And then on... Terry, who was... Yeah, he was like another decade That's later. Right. So. Yeah. And, and then on, on to the present. So. But I mean, what I find interesting as well, because we're talking about the uh, national nature of fiction, I guess, mm. media, is that the UK is actually in a weird place with such a large market that people don't actually ever much talk about, unless you're talking about Robert Holstock or something. Mm-hmm. And I talk yeah. about what's uniquely British. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can think of a couple of exceptions. I mean, Holstock would be one. Robert Rankin. Uh, Keith, Keith Roberts yeah. would be one. But is, is Pratchett classically British? Maybe he is. I, don't, I, I can't imagine know? an American writer doing quite no, a lot. No, I, I, I think he is. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, to, to me, there's a certain... There's a certain it feels as though, after Tolkien, the baton of classic commercial epic fantasy really was passed to American writers. Yeah. It was almost as though, right, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien had the last word of yeah, British done. writers on that. We're done now. <laughs> and then it was people like Eddings and Brooks, Ray yeah. Feist, you know, writers of that kind, who then start to define the commercial genre of epic fantasy. Well, it's only recently there's been a couple of British people doing yeah. it again, really. A lot of British stuff has been... Weird, more weird fiction, yeah. more like China Meoville, those kind of writers. Mm. That feels more distinctly British, that kind of literary fantasy, I think. Well, also, there aren't many people, unless I'm just missing them and ill-read, which is entirely possible, who are writing. I mean, I, to me, at a glance, I would say you're writing more in a in a path that's, that, that comes down from, say, Robert E. Howard. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Rather than Tolkien or Lewis, particularly. Yeah. And in the States... It's the Tolkien-esque fantasy that has dominated, mm-hmm. whereas in the UK it's been Mervyn Peake descended fantasy that tends to dominate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose that's the, yeah what, what I was thinking of with with the more weird mm-hmm. end. Absolutely. And, and then if you talk mm-hmm. to whether it's Mike Harrison or whether it's China Meoville or something like that, it's very much Peake influenced. And actually, I was quite surprised when we were talking to Bill Gibson the other day, and he was talking about just how heavily influenced he was by Peake. And the influence that Peak had on Neuromancer, that Gormgast had on Neuromancer, which completely threw me, but once you get it, you're going, well, yeah, I can see it all through it, which is really quite unexpected. Mm. Um, But for some reason, that sort of Robert E. Howard through Freck, I guess it moved, and this is, I'm just sort of putting it out there, almost moved into role playing gaming rather than into fiction for a while. I guess in kids' fiction there was there was Susan Cooper and there was yeah. Alan Garner um, doing a, a smaller kind of fantasy that yeah. I, I was I found very compelling when I was younger and still find sure. very compelling now. But it's a diff- entirely different kind of fantasy. Again. And Alan Garner very has a very British kind yeah. of the, the, the landscape of Britain is very present. Yes, in those oh, books. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right there. What you said about sword and sorcery and yeah. uh, moving into gaming, it feels to me that you know Tolkien became very dominant within the the written form mm. and the commercial end of fantasy. But the writers like Fritz Lieber and Jack Vance and Howard, very, very influential on gaming, yeah. later on video gaming as a result. And in a way, a lot of the writers who are currently successful doing those kind of things sure. are uh, big gamers and have been very influenced yeah. by Dungeons and Dragons and other such things. Well, yeah. well I mean, I, I guess this is it. it's, it's one of those things which commentators mm. seem to have struggled more to come to terms with is that there is a strong link, in, you know, influentially, through gaming that maybe is an experience they're not familiar with mm. and so they don't see it as having been a storytelling tradition if not a literary tradition and yet you know 
yourself, Stephen Erickson, and I would imagine if I were to sort of think about others, mm. really do seem to be heavily influenced by that. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, Scott Lynch, definitely. Yeah. Peter Brett. Pat uh, I'd guess. Pat Rothfuss, yeah, yeah. yeah those, those sort of guys. I mean, for me, I never read Howard or Fritz Lieber yeah. or Jack Vance until after I was published. Yeah. And people said, your stuff's quite like this. Yeah. Whereas I was very familiar with, say, Conan the Barbarian, the film, and, yeah. mm. you know, Dungeons and Dragons supplements that, yeah. that reek of Fritz Lieber, yeah. you know, when you... When you well, like, I guess that's it. I mean, I was thinking earlier today, because I was thinking about what we might talk about, and, you know, whether the whole World Fantasy Award type book that exists out there, you know, could Fritz Lieber, could a Faffer and the Grey Mouse story win the World Fantasy Award in 2015? Now, I've got a deep-seated suspicion it couldn't, mm. right? Because... Everything's gone down different tracks, and I'm not being particularly critical of those awards, but just have gone down different tracks. Mm. And you know, this thing where I mean, you're saying I, I can totally picture where is what Steve Jones was it? Steve, the, the guy who did the actual uh, wrote Dungeons and Dragons. I've forgotten his name. Uh, it was Gary Gary, 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 Gary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see him being heavily influenced by Howard, by by Libra, by whoever else. Yeah, pushing that into what he does. And it largely disappears from the rest of the literary world to some degree, or the book world for a while, mm. until it comes out in what you're doing. Much as, I mean, in a, in a different but corollary way, Star Wars and space opera goes through film and television yeah. and comes out now in mo modern science fiction. Mm. Because, I mean, that must have been a significant part of what you were doing. I mean, what, what you were consuming as a, that, that sort of sponge you are when you're in your mid to late teens and you're soaking up different things oh definitely i mean it was all star wars movies and star wars novels and and uh, blake seven and blake seven novels when i was when i was a teenager and early yeah. teenager and uh, and less so much less less so the literary i mean i loved science fiction the science sure. fiction tradition but they didn't have the big epic space battles that i was really keen on every now and again you'd get one in a larry given novel or something like that yeah. but, uh, but i just wanted to blow shit up in a humongous way, you know. I think I think I've stopped writing space opera for a while because I, having having collided the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxy in a an act of war, that where do you go from there? You know? so, <laughs> I, the scales are just so huge, and that really appealed. But, um, it does rather reach reach back to Doc Smith and Galaxy Smashing. Yeah, that's right. Which is fun. Yeah, I mean, Lensman series. Yeah, that's right. I loved those when I was a teenager too. Similar as I, I, I you know, you, you go back to read Robert Howard. It's all it is all about. Hitting something with a sword. Yeah. You know, I, I, I could discuss this. We could go through the finer points, but I'm just going to hit you with a sword and it'll be all right. I was surprised when I read those books how much of them are written from a female point of view. Really? I've not read much myself. I well, I, I haven't read loads. Maybe I've just happened uh, to have happened upon a few stories that, that are, but I, I would have thought none of them ever would be. Yeah. You know, but actually quite a lot of mine. Yeah. yeah, it's quite surprising. They see, they see Conan from the outside. Oh, so they admire his muscles and his manliness. Or, well, don't we all? <laughs> or, or, or do you think it's like um, fun, um, um, World of Warcraft, where plenty of guys play as women? You think is it is it an early awesome. early form of sort of gender switch, 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 switching? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I think so. Yeah. Actually, to look back something I was talking to Sean about. How was it for you writing characters like Thorn in Half a World? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's been a long road for me. I, I'm yeah. kind of the opposite of, of Sean in this sense. Yeah. I, I started off writing. I think without ever thinking about it, very male mm -hmm. books. I mean, my first three books are uh, have one female point of view out of six, and she's of quite a male type of character. And I wrote in a very patriarchal society uh, of the classic fantasy type. 
thinking I was doing some terribly clever things mm-hmm. with the, with the <laughs> and in fact just not doing anything at all. I mean, I did better than The Hobbit for female representation, but in that you basically have the yeah. recycle baggins and that's a lot. <laughs> Two lines. So I did better than that, but I think towards the end of writing those books, or even maybe halfway through, I was starting to realise that I could have done a lot better yeah. with the women. And uh, so my fourth book, I took a female central character, but still a lot of men around and in a very male world. And so when I came to write these uh, young adult books, these new books, I, I kind of wanted very decidedly to have a world and a culture and a structure in which I could very effortlessly and easily get a big range of varied and powerful mm. female characters in there in different ways. And so I kind of happened, Viking society was quite mm. positive for, for women, certainly much more so than you know, the Christian world that was around. Uh, there were a lot of powerful and influential women around and they took on a lot of authority when men were away on long yeah. voyages and things of that kind. And so um, taking that as a starting point, I kind of came up with this idea or maybe just cribbed it from somewhere. I, I usually find I've stolen <laughs> ideas rather than thought for myself. There are no, you, no, you, no, no you are not, exactly, of, of kind of warfare and, and you know, work loosely yes. being the male sphere and property and money Mm. Uh, and knowledge being the kind of female sphere uh, so that you know women are responsible for the household they hold they have the key to the household and that's become extended to include the whole arena of, of being a merchant a queen becomes the kind of chancellor of the, of the yeah. country and runs the money basically and in this era where the books take place the money is becoming more and more important and powerful yeah. and hence women become more and more important and powerful and that's kind of a the central what's going on in the background, yes. if you like. Uh, and so the idea was to get a lot more women into the story. So I have, I, I have, I think, hopefully been successful in doing that. I mean, part of it was to then have... The, the first book has a male character who, because of a disability, has been forced kind of into almost a female role as a minister, as an advisor, yeah. a keeper of knowledge. Uh, and then the second book has the reverse. It has a girl who's obsessed with becoming a warrior. Um, and so, again, quite an aggressive male style of female character, I think. The third book then has a has a much more traditionally feminine central female character. So it's been really interesting. I mean, I, I feel like I'm always trying to get better at doing it. It's something that, that I need yeah. to constantly work at and think about. Uh, but that in the end, you know, a, a nice, broad, diverse cast is always a kind of unexamined good. Quite apart sure. from any, any kind of political yeah. argument. You can put that completely to one side and ask what makes the book good, what is yeah. good writing... And a nice range of characters, I think, is, is always a good thing from that point yeah. of view. I mean, the other thing as well is it's easy, it's in a way easy to do central characters, but what, what I really failed to do in my first few books was to have women incidentally mm. around. Yeah, in the world. In the world, you know. I mean, armies in the medieval era would, would have thousands of women everywhere, in all kinds of different roles. They'd be everywhere, literally. Like the trail after a comet, there'd be women everywhere. Yeah. In epic fantasy, which focuses on war all the time, <laughs> You, you have scenes where there's just no women as far as the eye can see. Yes. Um, and, you know, I did that myself to a degree. Um, and so just getting women in incidentally, showing that, you know, when you see 10 people on the street, some of them are female. <gasps> well, this is Gina Davis's big push. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Right. I'd seen half of them are women or yeah. 51% of them are women. You know? yeah. why, why don't we see that in movies and TV? I know. It is, it is strange. And not to re- reduce it to anything too simplistic, but it's an element of that... When you sat around with your mates playing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> campaigns, it was all you guys running around hitting things with swords. 
Yeah, yeah. Except, except maybe the one, the one girl with the high charisma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that subconsciously bleeds through into the point you start from. I think it does, and, and, and just you will find an awful lot of fiction, even fiction that's taken very seriously, sure. like, like Hobbit, say, where you know, women are not only rare, they're virtually non-existent at all. Yes. I think, and, and as, a, as a boy, for me anyway, when I grew up, it's easy to read those kind of books where you barely see female characters at all. I yeah. think girls' yeah. fiction, if you will, whatever that means, is always has male characters very significantly in it, one way or another. Yeah. You don't see that complete elision of agenda, yeah. really, very rarely. So I think it's very easy for boys to kind yeah. of fall in, as you know, as I did to a degree when I first started writing, to not even think about yeah. it and just to suddenly create these very male worlds. Yeah, I'm curious. Reader feedback is always a curious thing to get. You know, some areas you don't get as much of it as you might like. Sometimes you get more than you might like. Mm. <laughs> Have either of you had much feedback from young women about reading your books? And I mean, the re- I mean, I'll, I will put it out there. The reason I'm interested is because. I read, particularly, I read the crash sound, crash sound, I read half a world, I'm thinking, my 13-year-old daughter who two years ago told me she wasn't a reader and now reads constantly, I think would love half a world. Mm. I think she'd love Twin Maker. And so I'm curious as to whether you're getting any feel, because, I mean, particularly for you more than you, because you've written mm. in these audiences before, mm. it's not typically, I would think, your audience. Yeah, well, you'd be surprised, I think, to a degree. It, it, it is, it is yeah. very varied, but, I mean... If I go to Scandinavia, say, yeah, it's uh, events will be mostly girls. Yeah, even even yeah. some time ago. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the UK, you do seem to get mostly boys, young men at events. Here, it seems quite there's there's a lot of women at events as well. Yeah. Um, I suppose there's a degree to which it depends where you hang out online because some sure. spaces online are quite male dominated forums, chat rooms. You know, mm. you get a lot of str- loud male voices. If you go somewhere more like Goodreads. You'll see loads and loads of female opinions because you know there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of young women talking about why literature in that particular place. So I certainly get a lot of feedback from women. Yes, but exactly whether there's a particular tone to that feedback, it's hard to yeah. it's hard to judge exactly what they're feeling about the female characters, about sure. the male characters. We don't mm. necessarily hear. All the bloggers seem to be women, or certainly the bloggers who review my books all seem to be women. And yeah, the, the yeah. feedback seems to be almost entirely women, which is. Which is actually yeah. quite interesting, yeah. but I'm too scared to go on Goodreads. Um, <laughs> Twin, Twin Maker, Twin Maker uh, was quite savage oh, on Goodreads. Yeah, yeah. I'm oh. still, I'm too scared to go. The first review I got of it was a, a did not complete because um, three chapters in the blog I decided it was obviously slut shaming. So I emailed all my, I emailed all my editors to say, is it? Is it? Tell me, tell me, I haven't written a book. Please. And they all said, no, 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 no. She should have just kept reading. My latest book was described as a soppy tween romance by one star one the other day. Was that just... from a boy? No, yes. well, oh. no, I think it was, in fact, from a woman. Though it's, wow. It is, of course, always a little bit, you're never totally sure, generally, whether I've, I've, a mean, is or isn't. I mean, I've read Half a World, and I've not consciously re- read any soppy teen romances. Mm. So I can't actually compare. No, I was wondering if, my, you my got, if you've got boys emailing you to say, what are all these girls doing in my books? I only ask because of ethics and going, <laughs> why are you suddenly putting these this, this people in my books? Yeah, I suppose I've never, I've rarely had that kind of criticism from, from male readers. I've certainly mm. had criticism of the young adult stuff from adult readers who, who kind of are... Missing the sex and violence. Well, I think... Particularly in the states where there hasn't necessarily been that distinction made, right. and it's been sold as adult fantasy, 
you do get reviews where people go, this this was short and and you know it had it had this this coming of age story. It was, it was almost like a young adult book. And you can't write books like that for adults. You know? I know. Because I mean, so we've all been there. That's the slightly mm. weird thing, isn't it? That's I mean, right. It's, it's not weird. like we don't stop coming of age, even when we're forty. I barely feel you know. like I've grown. I still feel like a seventeen-year-old. <laughs> I still look like a seventeen-year-old. Yeah. But then I think you've touched on something that is a bugbear of mine, and that is right. the packaging has to be honest. Yes. You know, yeah. it has to give you an idea of what you're actually getting. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a great thing, and it didn't happen with the Shattered Sea books or with the Twin Maker books, but, you know, where you hide the fact that you're, you're selling them book one of a series because you don't want them to know for whatever reason, <laughs> and that sort of thing, and that irritates people. Uh, that certainly happened in the States with Twin Maker because it yeah. was just Twin Maker, a novel. And people right. get the ending and went, what? Whoa. What the hell is this cliffhanger? What? I've got to wait a year. Yeah. yeah. And I, I could imagine as well, you're saying basically because there's no flag anywhere in the packaging that this is intended for a young adult audience. I mean, I, I, did, I edited a couple of books, uh, Starry Rift and Life on Mars, which were intended for a young adult market science fiction. Mm. But they were packaged in a very mature way, a very slick, nice packaging. Mm. And I had people mm. going, this is great, but exactly what you experienced, mm. kind of really, seems a bit like YA-ish. And you're going, yeah, it was sold to YA publishers on YA price print through the YA market, and it was pitched as a YA book. And I don't know, just because there wasn't a... I mean, one of the differences, actually, when I think about it, if you look back at classic YA science fiction, at least, because YA fantasy, a little bit different. But the characters were all... I mean, you'd get a 13-year-old on the cover kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, with, with, maybe with a spacesuit on. But, you know, if... Half, you know, half a world that had, uh, I guess, a sixteen-year-old Thorn or something with a sword on the cover. Mm-hmm. It might have given you more of a an idea. That's what you're going to encounter. Yeah, well, I mean, Subterranean Press's limited edition say has a much more kind of traditional, it's beautiful mm. cover actually, gorgeous cover, uh, with a with a, someone who distinctly looks young. And yeah. I think, as you say, yeah, that that does then put it in a different, yeah, in a different slot. And I think also a lot of people don't necessarily have the book in their hand anymore. Mm. They want Amazon. They well, see a cover. That's right. I don't know. They don't read the blurb. The cover of your book. Oh, like John Crumley. Yeah, you know. Oh, yeah. That'd be really violent, and yeah, that'd be long. It'd be long and violent for weeks. So let's buy, and then it turns up, and of course, you know, no, whoa, this, is this, this is lighter than I was expecting. <laughs> I don't know. So that might be. A, you know, they don't necessarily look at all the publicity material. Or, well, not. Well, I mean, but they may not even notice that it's cheaper too. That it's a way uh, price point. Yeah. But I guess yeah. that's also one of the. The blessings of reading, if you're lucky. I mean, you get a little bit in the electronic environment, I guess. Mm. And that is, I mean, when you have the chance to read a manuscript as opposed to any kind of finished book, it's a very different experience, isn't yeah. it? Mm, you know, because there, yeah. there's no flag for you about what you yeah. get. Yeah. You know, if you pick up Crash Land by Sean Williams and it's this much, you know, like three inches of paper, all you maybe know if you know his name is it might be science fiction. Mm. In Crash Land, who knows? If you pick up The Heroes by you and it's eight inches of paper. <laughs> uh, again, you know, presumably there are heroes in there, but not much else. Well, in fact, not even that. Shipped <laughs> <laughs> again by that Abercrombie short oh. books, heroless books, they are going to go. But it is a great way. I think it's great to have that ability to be able to read that way. I mean, I, I really prefer to read without having any expectations at all, except that maybe somebody's recommended it, or it's the new Joe Abercrombie book, and, and he might surprise me by, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the very best recommendation is the new Joe Abercrombie. Uh, no, no, but no, I mean, bled to just say that. But I think we're, we're very unusual in that respect. Yes. You know, to want to pick up a book and be shocked and not know what the hell you get. Sure. 
to, to, to pick up a can of drink that has no mark upon it and not know whether you're getting Sprite or piss, yeah. you know, is, is, a, is, I think, quite a rare desire. Most readers want to know exactly what they're going to get, in fact. I mean, that's the whole purpose of a genre. I find that most readers are kind of shocked and dismayed to be shocked and dismayed. But isn't, isn't that kind of like a balance, though? There were, yeah. I mean, on one hand, I was going to say, one of the joys of genre is that it will go through certain structures and story and deliver certain things at the end. Mm. But then reading any book afresh, surely one of the pleasures of it is that there are things you find for the first time. You know, you don't know already that this is going to happen or that's going to happen or they're going to use this sort of a thing. And it changes, it's the reward for reading. I mean, people go a bit too much about spoilers, but certainly, you know, it's not. It's nice to encounter something for the first time fresh. Sure. It is, though, I mean, and it depends on the genre, of course, because obviously something like mysteries mm. rely on the idea that you're not quite going to know exactly how it turns out, although yeah. obviously there are rules yes. there. But something like romance, yeah. you know, category romance, has very strict rules that you can't break. Yeah. Very strict. And, you know, if, if you're... If you don't have a happy ending, sorry, you don't belong in this category. In that particular subgenre. In that particular right. subgenre. Yeah. Where, and, and likewise, I think, you know, not to pick on romance particular, I think oh. epic fantasy for a long time mm. was very much as prescriptive and kind of predictable. Sure. And you would have certain types of character, mm. and you'd pretty much know what would happen with those Plans, characters. Plans, horse people. Which is why Game of Thrones was so shocking when it appeared, because sure. it appeared to fit that bill and then to give you something yeah. very, very yeah. different. So... I think there are a lot of people out there who the last thing they want is to be surprised by something they've had. As they look for the immersive sort of life experience with their books. Yeah, and, and you know, they want a certain thing out of their books, which is, which yeah. is fine. When someone buys a, you know, a certain prepackaged meal from the freezer area in the supermarket, they want the same thing as they had last time. If it's different, they're going to get a little bit upset yeah. and rattled by that. Yeah. But it can't be, well, is it satisfying still to, to deliver to that? To, to actually write to fit... The expected product, or well, it depends. You know, I mean, if somebody's written Star Wars novels and stuff like yeah. that, I mean, you are really writing to the expected product, and and it's 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 the, the frozen food metaphor. It's a good one because every now and again you just want a frozen meal or or, or fish and chips from a fish and chip yeah. shop. But if you ate that every day, mm. you'd get it'd be terrible. It'd be awful. But you might mm. have fish and chips one night. You might have a gourmet dinner that you cooked at home the next night. And I think finding that balance has certainly for me been been. A, a challenge and a delight too because I can do all these different things and I enjoy them so. and yet of course you know you, you must find as well that you have re readers who just want fish and chips well yeah and I suppose there are readers who it's fine but it, mm. it's hard to know exactly yeah. what they want and it may well be there's a reader who you know is is hitting the experimental Russian literature mm. six days a week and then when they buy their epic fantasy they want it to be that's what they want they want fish and chips they want fish and chips they want gourmet stuff from Sunday yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah. when it comes to Sunday we want fish and chips and, and when <laughs> yeah. I buy the fish and chip cart and I do not want to open it and find pasta inside <laughs> you know yeah. so maybe it's totally reasonable I don't know I think it's, it can drive you mad trying to trying to uh, trying to work out what your audience wants because your audience is is so multifaceted and and, and so possible. changeable that I think you've just got to write what you want to write. I think I think <laughs> the key in a way is to is the way in which the way something is packaged and covered mm. and presented yeah. mm. has to somehow give out those subliminal almost imperceptible little cues that tell mm. someone okay this is epic fantasy but it's a bit it's a bit different it's a bit darker don't expect no. the same thing. Or this is very safe and familiar epic fantasy. Sure, sure. Or, you know, this is epic fantasy with maybe a bit more of a horror vibe. And, and you know, it's amazing what designers can do, what covers can do in, in terms of giving that hint as to what you're going to get. And like you were saying earlier, it's it's about getting the advertising right and making yeah. people mm. aware of what they're getting, I suppose. 
I'd still rather do that by bloggers. I think blog, bloggers and reviews and, and personal mm. recommendations, I would, I'd rather not see the cover or the blurb. I'd yeah. rather hear somebody say, if you're looking for something that's fantasy, but it's a bit darker and a bit stranger or, or less violent or written yeah. for a young adult audience or whatever, mm. you should try the new Joe Abercrombie book. And I'd go, right, that sounds great. I'll buy it. You know, go to... Go to Amazon, try not to look at yeah. the cover, buy it. Any story that ends with someone buying my book is, is <laughs> a good story as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, with both of your you know, new series, how much input have you had into the packaging of the books? Yeah, a fair mm. bit, I yeah. would say. Um, it's always a difficult one because I'm not really an originator of visual ideas, so mm -hmm. I don't kind of say what I want on the picture of this, the cover of this book. What I visualise is this. I won't brief a cover. I can't really do that. Yeah. But I can. I can be given a few ideas and and think about how we could work those. What what might sure, be, sure. what might not. I mean, at the moment, the the first world trilogy, my first three books are going to be re-released in the states uh, later on in the, in the coming few months. And so we're looking at recovering those, having a new cover treatment, thinking about how that might work. Mm. And so I like to be involved, and I have some contribution to make. But in the end, I'm conscious that designers and art directors and are skilled and expert, and often I will say one thing, they'll show me something else, and I'll be like, Oh, yeah, actually, that's I'm much totally better. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Or at that's least right. you know a lot better than I do. That's right. Yeah, they'll usually ask me for my opinion. Like, if they need an element, like the Australian yeah. covers have a symbolic element, and they came to me and said, We want to do something like this, what symbols could go on the covers? And I said, Oh, well, you could have this and this and this, and they went, Okay, and they look, they look great. Only once have I ever directly had input. From right from the very beginning on a cover, it was my first fantasy novel because I dreamed that I saw the book on a bookshelf and it had the old wizardy kind of character Lodo on the cover, and I um, I rang my editor and said I've just dreamed the cover of the book and Sean Tan was doing the covers and he did a sketch that looked exactly like the cover. It was absolutely uncanny and it ended up being changed. That wasn't what ended up what was on the book, but I still have that image. It was superb. Yeah, <laughs> superb. <laughs> it was changed, so it still wasn't a good cover. Ah. <laughs> yeah. But Sean's out. Was See, I, I kind of hate it when they ask me what I want on the cover. Mm. Quite a lot. Because I always figure that all that means is I'm going to be responsible if it doesn't sell well. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. And you can't say, I don't care, because then it oh, sounds like they'll blame it on you. If, if yeah, That's right, because you do care. I do care very much. But, mm. you know, you do get the thing where you're looking at, looking at going, but, you know, that's your area. What are you doing? And you know, like, I've, I've had published so many, what do you want? What artists do you want? How should it look? And you're sort of going, wow, that's a great privilege and it's wonderful and I'm delighted that you let me do it, but oh my God, I hate it because I don't have any artists in mind. And I was, I packaged, I visualized the, the text, if you like, mm. not the physical book yeah. and hadn't really worked through what it was going to look like. And sometimes, you know, you get back a cover and you're going, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that, that's not really what I would, would have hoped for in an ideal world. Mm. And every now and again, that you know, gets knocked out of the park, and you're lucky. Mm. I mean, is there an element for you where maybe you've seen enough sort of Motley Bloodstained maps with bits of coins on them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is there is an element of that. Yeah. I think, um, but then it's always a very difficult balance between having a very successful. You know, those covers, yeah, 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 really covers were very, very successful for me, and um, I think achieve a really difficult balance of their fantasy enough mm. uh, without putting off a non-fantasy reader mm -hmm. and they also have a kind of distinctive look that kind of yeah. tells you something about the book yeah. and, and establishes a bit of a brand yes. recognition if you like so they've been incredibly good but then again you wouldn't want to have the same approach endlessly yes you know and you do want to 
diversify and do slightly different things each time. But it's a it's a fraught and difficult area. <laughs> and it's one that readers always let you know about as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've had a lot of published, a lot of different looks to, to your work over the years. Yeah. Whereas really, the Shattered Sea books really are the first books of yours that don't look just exactly like brothers and sisters of one another. Yeah, although in the States they've always had a, they've had a variety of different yeah. attempts. Although the first world books have, have had the same parchment yeah. covers, but on the, on the standalone ones they've tried various different things. Um, so yeah, in a way this is the first significant departure from that, certainly in the UK. I mean, in the UK there was also a, a, an A-format look that was more traditional fantasy style. Um, so they've tried different things, and obviously internationally there have been all kinds sure, of different, sure. yeah. different approaches. In, in Germany they have black covers with a sword on. <gasps> cool. Kriegsklingen, the first uh, book is called <laughs> Warblades. And then the second is called Vierklingen, Fireblades. That one has a red axe. That's a has a, a green sword. Yeah. And uh, they've really stuck to the whole Klingon thing throughout. <laughs> and it's all clearly branded. It's clearly branded, yeah. and you know, the big, dark, gothic books with a sword on work well in Germany. So That's who am I to complain? No, no, no. I mean, it's so, going to work anywhere. It'll work in Germany. <laughs> well, yeah. indeed, you know, and, and, and you trust people to kind of know their market a little bit. Uh, yeah, that's right. So it's, it's always a difficult one. I'm, I'm kind of always stuck between putting more in too much. Mm. I think the problem as well is you can tell someone what you like, but then you might not be representative in the market. That's right. When, when the Twin Maker first book came out, the, the UK and the US and Australia had radically different covers, right. and I kind of liked them all, but I, I conducted little surveys amongst American, English, or Australian friends, and they, and they were quite well targeted. The Americans like the Americans better, the Australians right. like the Australians better, and I thought, well, that's good. They're doing their job. Yeah. You know, that's, well, certainly, that's I mean, I remember... In Can- when, when you first started seeing imported American books come into Australia, mm. there was such a radical difference, particularly mm. in genre fiction, it felt, between the way British and American and, I guess, now Australian books, which are related directly to the Commonwealth books, yeah. uh, are presented. It's quite, it's, it's a much, much less garish approach, I guess, is the way of what, you know, the American covers for genre fiction tend to be quite garish by comparison. You know, the British covers tend to be more stylized, more restrained. E- even when you have Comparatively lurid artists. I mean, when, if, if you go back to sort of the classic sort of Bruce Pennington era stuff, it wasn't exactly what you call subdued, but it didn't have that same kind of slick sales look to it, I guess, as well. But not there's anything to say. What's that? I just observe it. And of course, YA is different as well. Genre YA has a, has a, a very slick commercial kind of look to it that's different to genre in, in America. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see the market doing well, so, so well over there because the, the covers are so different. Yeah. yeah. But still appealing to adult readers. Yeah. Or genre. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Well, with that, I think we're getting towards the end of, our, of, the, of the hour, mm. which is good because I know you guys have somewhere to go this evening. You're off out to sort of for the festival opening. That's right, to see Sir Bob Brown. I'm sure he's going to be knighted one day. Sir Bob's going to give us a talk. <laughs> nice. He's going, who the hell is that? (laughs) A random Tasmanian. The greatest Prime Minister we never had. (laughs) (laughs) And then the party, of course. Excellent party. party. With that, uh, thank you very much, Joe, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. Obviously, the Shattered Seas books are out out now, and Half a War will be with us in a few months. Half a War will, in theory, be with us in July. 
Not yeah, it's all three in a year. That's the, that's the plan. I'm told that's the plan. I have no part in it. <laughs> and thank you, Sean, for joining us Pleasure. again. Lovely Always appreciated. And the third of the uh, Twin Maker books will be out in November. So people need to rush out and buy the first two right now. That's right. And since about three quarters of the people who listen to this podcast are in the States, all of you Americans particularly should run out and buy it Absolutely. right away. Mm-hmm. Greatly appreciated. And until then, thank you very much. We remain. The Coot Street Podcast.